uh, go to our Father in prayer at this time to bring our needs, um, the cares of our world before him, and I invite you to join me in doing that. Uh, Father in heaven, you who control and reign supreme over all of the heavens, all of the universe, and every place on the face of this earth, um, we lift these places and people up to you because we know that we can trust you to do good, to govern wisely in your providence, and to bless your people with good things. We want to lift up this morning to you, the, the nation of Niger. And Father, we know that the Christian population there is almost infinitesimally small and that the false hope, the condemnatory legalism of, of Islam is so pervasive across the country. We thank you, Father, for the relief organizations, the Christian relief organizations that have gone there in your name and opened doors for the gospel. We pray that their work would be fruitful, that their work would continue to open doors, that the workers through those aid agencies would be bold to proclaim the name of Jesus even when it might be scary. Father, we thank you for the new batches of missionaries that you have raised up to Niger, particularly from Brazil and from Nigeria. And we are amazed at the blessings that you do. We sometimes think in America that we are the center of the world and we are the center of your providence and care. And we know that that is deep down not true. And here we see your people, your saints, from across the globe going that others who know Jesus less might hear about him more. We pray that you would encourage those missionary efforts there and in other nations to, to raise up more to go to Niger. We pray for so many unreached people groups in Niger that have little to no witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we particularly raise up to you the Zarma people who, though uh, they are Muslim in name, are so uh, captured by traditional uh, practices and um, traditional religion and animism and, and so few Christians even can be named among them. Father, we thank you for the missionaries that you have there. We pray that you would strengthen them to complete that task. We pray for the Bible translation projects that are going on there, that they would be completed in a timely way, that people would be able to hear your word in their native tongue. And so hearing the word would believe the word and come to be followers of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray um, as we enter into fall and we are 
uh, uncertain uh, still at this point in 2022 what this uh, pandemic means and what this pandemic holds, that we would be uh, 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 in your churches, that we would be um, people who live not in fear and yet not with a careless disregard for our neighbor, but that we would show uh, love and concern and compassion, that you would give us wisdom to uh, walk that delicate road of, of trying to uh, understand how to love well and how to be safe uh, and how to be cautious even as we try to uh, deal with what seems to be a, uh, a new normal of a, of a disease that is going to uh, crop up again and again and again from season to season. We pray that you give us wisdom that your churches, Father, and that even our church would not be a... Um, a divisive spirit in our culture, but there would be a spirit of hope and a spirit of peace and a spirit of love that shows people a better way, not because we have invented a superior way, not because we are inherently better people, but because we know the one man who is superior and who is better, and he has shown us a better way. Father, we pray that we would hear your word this morning and even in the weakness of our hearts and our minds that you would speak to us and use me in my uh, fragility um, to that end. May we hear your word. May we believe your word. May we commit ourselves to you once again. And may we know you better. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys want to turn to uh, the book of 1 Samuel. We're in uh, chapter 9 this morning, actually 9 through about half of chapter 10. Uh, just to kind of remind you guys, as we are in a new series for the fall, uh, there's these pink cards over there that kind of give you the lay of the land of how we're moving through uh, sermons uh, through beginning of January. You print those about, every, about three times a year. Um, just so you have, you know where we're going. Uh, you can read the scriptures ahead of time. You know where we're going to be. You can check what anyone up here says against God's word, which is the true standard. Um, but we are, for the most part, going to be in a series uh, in 1 Samuel. Uh, we were in 1 Samuel back in 2018, looking at the first seven chapters. And uh, we're going to try and finish up the book here this fall. So, 1 Samuel chapter 9, top of that chapter down through... Uh, chapter 10, verse 16. Let's read that, and then we will dig in. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to, his, said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah. 
but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. They passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with them, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring this man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. Where do we, what do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go see the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met there a young woman coming out to draw water and said, and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the, land, from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul... The Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he, he it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning... I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat, therefore, eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul up on the roof, 
up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will, be, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. There three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, uh, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. A little longer passage this morning. They won't all be that long in this series, but being narrative, some of these passages will get a little bit longer. You know, sometimes when we go about our lives, we, we encounter things and, and people that maybe aren't what we make them out to be, aren't what we assume that they're going to be. We, we build them up to be one thing in our heads when in reality uh, it, it's quite possible they're something very different. Um, I remember, among many such episodes, um, when I was in grad school, I was enrolled in a seminar, and we had to do these very similar seminars multiple times 
during grad school where we met with a local pastor. Um, and and they, were, they, were, they were seminars. We, we would chat. We would talk about ministry things. We would do, look at case studies. We would just think through issues. Some of these courses met for half a semester, for a little bit longer. Some met for a full semester, for a little bit shorter. It, it kind of got confusing. And I had been in one that was short, and then I got into one that was, went the whole semester. I hit the halfway point in the semester, and getting confused, I, I stopped going. And uh, a couple weeks after I stopped going, the, uh, the professor, the pastor, uh, reached out to me. He was like, hey, you know, is, is everything okay? Where, where have you been? We've missed you. And, and I, was, uh, I was just absolutely embarrassed. I was shocked. I just... I, was, was horrified that I had made this mistake. I was apologizing profusely. And uh, he said, well, I, I want to meet with you. Um, you know, we'll, we'll try and get you kind of caught up. We'll meet with you, and, uh, and, and we'll go from there. And so we kind of set a time that we'd meet um, at the, the cafeteria, and he was going to come by, and, and we were going to kind of catch up. And, I, and, you know, I'd been in class with this guy a little bit. I didn't really know him very well. He wasn't a regular professor at the school, so... He didn't have a much of a long-standing relationship with him. Well, the time for the appointment came, and uh, he, he wasn't there. And I waited, and he wasn't there. And he, I waited, and he didn't show up. And, and the longer this went, I, I started building this up in my mind. Like, this guy, this guy is just so infuriated with me, right? He's just, he's just so disappointed in me that I had been missing these classes. And, and this, is, this is some sort of object lesson, right? He's going to keep me waiting here because I kept the class waiting all these other days. And, you know, I don't know how long I waited. Probably close to an hour, he, he finally shows up, and he is mortified that he has not been there. He got caught up with another appointment. Um, he was running late. Maybe, he got the, maybe it was he got the time wrong. I don't even remember now. But I, I started to build him up to be this absolute monster, right, who was just going to, like, you know, put me in my place as a young Christian about how I need to be more responsible and everything else. And, and here he was, just a, uh, uh, he, he was, he laughed, we laughed about it. He was, he was incredibly humble, incredibly generous, and uh, we, we caught up and everything. But I'd made him out to be something he wasn't. Um, and I think that's, that's common for us. We, we make somebody out, we make a situation out to be either what we want it to be, or if we're sort of masochists like I tend to be, what we fear most it's going to be. Um, and, and oftentimes the reality just does not line up with our perceptions. As we looked at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 last week, Israel asked Samuel for a king like the other nations. They asked for a king like the other nations. And God saw this and took this as a rejection of him. Because God was supposed to be their king. God was supposed to be their king. So when they demanded a king, they were essentially saying, we don't need Yahweh, we don't need Jehovah, we don't need God. We need a human king like all the other nations have. And they judged their king by the standards of other 
nations. And yet I think one of the things this passage teaches us, maybe the key thing this passage teaches us, is that we need to be careful to judge how God sees and not how man sees. Let me just paint the picture by kind of walking through a little bit what's going on, because there's, there's some confusing stuff going on. I know even as I studied the passage, like what are all these strange places? Um, it, it's just a weird story. It's, it's one of the stranger stories in the book of 1 Samuel, I think, and it, it doesn't help that we're not familiar with the culture, we're not familiar with the custom, we're not familiar with the, the topography and the geography of the place. So all those things. Um, just to kind of orient ourselves where we are, I assume most of you guys know where the Middle East is, but just put it in a little bit of perspective, right? So there's Europe, Africa, and uh, the Middle East, and that's, that's the area that we're going to be looking at, where most of the Bible takes place, right? That, that area between like Egypt and, and Turkey with that land that we call Israel um, in between. And that's where our story takes place. Um, kind of zoom in there a little bit on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Ocean, and then it's a little bit of a map of, of where these events are taking place specifically in this chapter. So the travels of Saul looking for his father's donkeys, and uh, then meeting this prophet and then going back home. Uh, so that river there is the Jordan River in Israel. That little lake you see there, is the, that's the Dead Sea. Uh, maybe that kind of helps orient you a little bit. But Samuel is, or Saul, excuse me, is going to, to make a journey kind of a little bit more northward, circle around, and come back down south. Um, the specific names of the lands, some of them we have a general idea where they are. Some of them are a little bit vaguer. We want to give you at least a general sense of the lay of the land, and then hopefully that keeps that from being a confusion to you and you're not sitting thinking about it in the back of your mind the whole time. Here's what we know about Saul. We get it, this, is our, this is our introduction to Saul, the son of Kish. And the way he's introduced to us is that he's from a prominent family. It could, be, it could be that he's wealthy, it could be that he's important in society, or it could be um, uh, maybe both are in mind. And so that's, uh, that's something that sticks out you know, in, our, in our skull right, right at the start. We, a prominent family. These are the, the types of people we usually look to for leaders, right? We, we, we like people that have a pedigree. We like people that, that come from a, uh, a background, a, a history of success. Um, is, it tends to be what we look for in leaders. And he's handsome. He's handsome. That, that, that goes well. In fact, that was uh, very common in the ancient world. You look around at ancient uh, kings and how they're described. Uh, you know, most people probably never saw their kings. There was no television or photographs or things like that. But inevitably, they're described as being extraordinarily handsome or well-built or super athletic. It just seems to be the way that ancient people described their kings because they had an interest in their kings being that sort of people. Um, and he's taller than most. He, he's taller maybe than all the Israelites. He's a, he's a head taller, so he's a particularly tall individual. He's hand, tall, dark, and handsome. This is, this is Saul. And you know, at first glance, tall, dark, handsome, and rich sounds like the kind of guy you might be interested in as a natural leader. He's the next generation coming up, right? 
his father Kish was such a great man. Who knows what Saul is going to do after him? We don't know what they, they do for a living. We know that most of the Israelites are still agricultural at this point, uh, but his family does have donkeys, uh, a herd of donkeys, and they've, they've gone lost. And so Saul is, is sent out to look for these donkeys. And the land of Benjamin is the smallest tribe. You might remember that the, the land of Israel was divided between the 12 tribes of Israel. Each of those tribes was given an inheritance of the land. And Benjamin was the smallest tribe. They received the smallest chunk of land. It's uh, it sat on the southern end of the Jordan River. Uh, it just barely skirted the, uh, the Dead Sea there. That's a very rough boundary. Uh, take that with a grain of salt. Um, but it's a very small area. It's sandwiched between Ephraim to the north and Judah to the south. Ephraim and Judah are later, you might remember this, you might know this, be kind of become the, the heartbeat of the kingdoms that are to come. So Benjamin's a strategic place, sandwiched right between what are going to be kind of become the, the two powerhouses in uh, the, the life of Israel. And so if there was an area where you might draw a leader from, you might draw a leader from an area that can bridge the gap between these two regional powers. But anyway, Saul and a slave of his, they travel all around Benjamin. They travel all around eastern Ephraim searching for these donkeys. And they're flummoxed. They, they can't find them anywhere. And so Saul wants to go home. He's worried that his dad is going to start caring more about him than the donkeys. And before they get there, this unknown, unnamed slave that he's brought with him, it talks about him as the, the young man or whatever. He's a slave. He's a slave. It probably doesn't mean everything that slavery means in, when you think about the American context. But this is not a, a free person. He's a slave. And he knows something. He said, Saul, before we leave, the area we're in right now, there is a prophet in this area. And he has a pretty good reputation. Maybe we should seek him out and see if he knows something about the donkeys. Maybe he can tell you something. And with this kind of an interesting thing, you know, we tend to think, I, I think if you grew up in the church, or if you've been in the church long, you think of a, a prophet as somebody who does something very serious, very, something very important. And you might be thinking to yourself, donkeys seems kind of low on the, the prophetic list. And I, I would say, yeah, no. A uh, couple of things to keep in mind. One, yes, um, that's a concern about a very temporal thing. These donkeys are going to be here today, gone tomorrow, and they're not really all that important in the internal scope of the universe. On the other hand, if you live in an agricultural society where there's no banks, there's, there's not really much in the line, sense of lines of credit, your wealth is stored up in your, uh, in your agriculture, in the fields you own, the produce you have, what you are able to store in the granaries, or if you keep flocks, it's in the animals that you have. And so this isn't exactly a trivial issue. Donkeys are a herd animal. It says don we don't know how many donkeys left, but they probably, it probably wasn't two. 
because donkeys travel in herds. And so, who knows? This could be scores of donkeys. This could be a tremendous amount of family wealth and a tremendous amount of wealth in a very small tribe of Israel that God has his hand on. So, this isn't necessarily a trivial thing. But Saul's concerned. He doesn't have money. He doesn't have money to, I guess, give a gift to Samuel or pay him a little something. There's sort of an expectation that, you know, if we want to get a favorable answer or we want to hear something from God, we've got to, we've got to buy that. And, and Saul doesn't have any money, but good news is his servant does. So the slave has some money. They've, they've got this figured out. They're going to go see Samuel, and they're going to see what Samuel can do. Uh, we get this little note here in the passage about the difference between a seer and a prophet. Um, it, it doesn't matter. Don't let that confuse you. But it's, it's an interesting little note that the Bible was written over a period of time. And whenever the person wrote the book of 1 Samuel knew that they were talking about a seer back then. But the person who wrote the book of 1 Samuel knew that at the time of the writing of this book, people aren't going to maybe understand that term. So he's translating for them. Just a little interesting historical footnote. A seer is literally one who sees. That's, that's what it is. It's a seer. They see-er. And probably in the sense of someone who has insight, someone who has understanding. Whereas a prophet is literally a mouthpiece. That's what that term means. It's one who speaks on behalf of another. In the context of Israel, uh, a prophet, a nabi, was a person who spoke on behalf of God. They were God's mouthpiece. So they, they come up to the town, and this young woman tells them where to find Samuel. And she describes this local religious celebration that Samuel apparently presides over. And, and he's probably likely the most important religious figure in these people's lives. He's, he's been a judge of Israel for decades. He has, uh, been, he has served in the, the tabernacle previously under the, uh, the previous high priest. And so he's a very prominent religious figure. And he kind of presides over this local religious ceremony, it seems. Samuel himself, uh, as we move about halfway down the, the ninth chapter, has already been told by God that he's going to meet a man from Benjamin that day and make him a king. Samuel, in, in chapter 8, knew that God was going to give the Israelites a king because they asked for one. But he had to wait to hear from God about who that person was. Samuel was going to wait on the word of God before he acted. But he's heard it. He's been told by God that he's going to meet a man from the tribe of Benjamin, and that that man is going to be the man that God wants him to make king. And so God has sovereignly orchestrated history to bring these two men together at this place in chapter 9. And God promises to Samuel that Saul, this Benjaminite that he's going to meet, is going to rescue the Israelites from the Philistines. God has heard their cry. The Philistines were, they're a foe of Israel that comes up throughout uh, a large portion of the Old Testament. And they're an interesting people because historically, archaeologically, we know they existed. Lots of other nations talk about them, but they're kind of cryptic. They're sometimes referred to as the sea people. 
And what we believe now is that they, they came from uh, you know, southern Europe, maybe from the Mediterranean Sea. They were sort of like a, a, a collective of different tribes in different regions who kind of banded together and, and ran into the area that we call Canaan or Israel and, and started conquering it. Uh, and just kind of out of the story, but exactly where they came from is, is unclear, and so it's really hard to trace their history. And yet, all these nations around here, uh, we have archaeological, historical records of them complaining about these sea people who just came in and started taking things over. And they become a bane of Israel's existence for centuries. But now God is promising, I am going to get rid of these guys, and I'm going to use Saul to do that. And that is worth pausing on for just a second because in chapter 8, God's people had rejected him. God put it in no uncertain terms that by asking for a king, they were essentially saying that Yahweh is not a good enough king for us. We want to be run we want to be ruled. We want to be managed like all the other nations are managed. We know that God called us to be a special people. He called us to be a holy people. He called us to have a unique relationship with him. But we like how things are going for those other guys better. And so they want to take God off the throne of Israel and put a human king in his place. And so they've rejected God. And here in chapter 9, God is still saying, I have heard their cries of their oppression under the hands of the Philistines. And despite the fact that they have rejected me, I haven't rejected them. And I'm going to bring an end to their suffering. God is a merciful God who puts up with our sin and our wickedness and our running from him over and over again. Saul is going to rescue them from the Philistines. He's going to restrain God's people, God tells Samuel. And that's when we have Saul and his slave running into him, running into the prophet Samuel, and learning that he is the one that they, he's looking for. Saul is, is invited to join the religious ceremony. In fact, he, he, uh, he has made Samuel's guest of honor. He says, don't even worry about the donkeys. They've already been found. Don't worry about them at all. It's, it's amazing. He doesn't even come to... They, they, he came to Samuel to ask Samuel about the donkeys. He doesn't ever have to ask him about the donkeys. Samuel already knew, because of God, that he was looking for the donkeys and... He is ready with an answer. Samuel suggests to Saul that a great honor is coming upon him. Uh, he says, uh, who is... Um, <clears throat> sorry, is it... Uh, who, who, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house in, in 920? It's kind of a, kind of a cryptic way of, of speaking, but essentially he's saying that all of the good of Israel has now come to you, Samuel. And, and 
uh, Saul, and, and Saul doesn't quite, quite understand what he means, but he knows that what he's saying is really flattering, really uh, strong language, and he, uh, maybe, he's being, maybe he's being polite, uh, and sort of showing some deference. But he's like, who, who am I that you would, you would speak to me this way? Saul takes Samuel, gives him the seat of honor at the feast. He gives him the choicest portion of the meal, and he gives him the best bed in the house. Did you catch that? He, he puts Saul on the roof. In ancient Israel, uh, in, in many places there, uh, in that general region, it got hot. There wasn't a lot of rain, and sometimes the best bed in the house was the roof. It was a place where you entertained guests, because in the cool of the day, there was nice breezes that came across there. So you might think, why does Samuel get to sleep indoors? Well, no, the, the outdoors was probably the, the better spot. So he's showing all sorts of honor to, to Samuel as he goes on. And the next day, they, they begin to leave. Samuel tells Saul, let the slave go ahead. You stay back. I don't want to talk to you. He pours oil on his head, which becomes a symbol of anointing. We, you see that in uh, the anointing of the priests, anointing of the Levites, and then it becomes a thing where they anoint the kings to show that they have God's seal on them. So Samuel anoints Saul and explicitly tells him, here's the honor. You're going to be king, you're going to rule, and you're going to save my people, save God's people from the Philistines. And I'm going to give you three signs of this, God tells Saul through Samuel, so that you know that what I'm saying is not made up, so that I'm, you know that what I'm saying is serious and real. You're, on your way back, you're going to pass Rachel's tomb. Rachel, um, uh, the great matriarch of the Israelite clans. And you're going to meet two men there who are going to tell you what I've just told you, that they've already found the donkeys and you don't need to worry about them. You're going to, then you're going to come and you're going to come to the Oak of Tabor, and, and you're going to meet some men going up to Bethel. They're probably going up to worship. That's why they're bringing goats. We know that Bethel was a, was a worship site in ancient Israel. They've got goats. They've got uh, probably to sacrifice. They've got loaves of bread to offer the priests. But they're going to give some of this bread to Samuel and, or to Saul. And Saul, you're going to take it, and you're going to welcome it. Uh, remember, Saul's already told his slave that they're out of bread, so I'm sure it was a welcome treat. And then they're going to come to Gibeath Elohim, which is near Saul's hometown. And, and Samuel mentions, reminder to him, that there's a, a Philistine outpost there. There's a military base there. And you're going to meet a band of prophets. And you're going to be so overwhelmed by God's spirit, you're going to begin to prophesy. And so he says, when these three things happen, do what your hand finds to do. And then go to Gilgal and wait for me. Those are these two commands that Samuel gives him. Go to Gilgal and wait for me. And all this happens. It happens exactly like, like Saul prophesied. Now it doesn't, uh, excuse me, it happens exactly like Samuel prophesied. And, and the end result of that is that Saul himself prophesied. Now, one of the things I think we have a tendency to do as Christians, we tend to think of like prophecy and things like that as something that happens in the New Testament. I know we have prophets in the Old Testament, but we tend to think of the gift of prophecy 
and these sort of ecstatic experiences is happening in the New Testament. And then I think we do this dangerous thing. And I could be wrong, maybe not you, but I think you read, I know I have in the past, we read what we see in the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And that's probably backward. We should probably read the New Testament experiences in light of what we see in the Old Testament. They came first. At least that should be our starting point. Because what this, here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Saul met this band of prophets and then he started like Nostradamus or something just saying things that were going to happen thousands of years in the future. That's not what it meant to prophesy. It didn't mean to predict the future. It, it meant that he was overcome by some sort of religious expression. It, it, he was overcome by ecstatic prayer. Um, he, he may have been engaged in ecstatic praise. He, he might have spoken in tongues. That could have been a, a form of prophecy, and it was known in many cultures, in many parts of the world. Uh, even pagan religions had expressions of speaking in tongues. It could mean, and probably most likely here, that he sort of fell into some sort of uh, catatonic or hypnotic trance. Again, it says that he changed his outward demeanor. He, his, he changed his affect. He became a different person. That doesn't mean that he was a, a bad dude before that, and then he was converted and he became a good dude. That's not what it means in this context. What it means is that in the moment that he was doing this prophesying thing, it was like people were experiencing a very different type of person. He did not seem like Saul. There was something weird going on with him uh, compared to his normal affect, according to his normal personality, according to his normal expression. So it's strange. It's worth noting, too, that, that Saul does not prophesy again. This is a one-time thing. It's, it's a, a, it's a one-time thing that confirms to him that God is doing what God said he was going to be doing. And it, it, he gets mocked for it. So he's, he's near his hometown or in his hometown at this point. There's people who know about him, know about his family, and, and they're mocking. Is, is Saul also among the prophets? They're so amazed by what they're seeing, his, his strange behavior from Saul. And, and they've known Saul from his prior life. And, and that might give us pause, too. What do they know about Saul previous to this that make them think that this is really odd that Saul would be doing something so religious? And then he is uh, insulted in some way. Um, the, the, the exact words as we've got them translated here, a man of that place answered, and who is their father? Who, who is the father of these, these prophets? Um, scholars debate exactly what the nature of that insult is, but everyone seems to agree that it was very insulting. It might have to do with, quite literally, who's your daddy? Um, Maybe, maybe Saul's real dad is not who we think he is. Um, and so there's, there's, it's, it's an insult, right? It's an insult. Um, the exact nature of the insult, we're not sure of, but we're all sure that it's an insult. And so they're, they're confused about this Saul guy. And then 
he reaches his hometown. He gets back home. He meets with his uncle. And he tells his uncle that Samuel told him about the donkeys. So this is, this is kind of the lay of the land. And as we kind of look at the story, we can see a lot that we can like about Saul. This is a guy who seems like he's got everything going for him from the standpoint of being from a prestigious family, from being from a wealthy family, from being particularly handsome, from being particularly tall. He has wealth, he has means, he has resources, he has the luxury to travel the countryside looking for a few donkeys. He has the blessing of God spoken over him. He has a religious experience. He um, is given an, uh, an anointing by the prophet of God. And from a human perspective, we might look at someone like Saul and say, this is exactly the kind of leader we want. But there are warning signs in this passage. There are a lot of warning signs in this passage that maybe Saul isn't who we think he is. Or maybe who we think he is isn't really what we should be looking for. Yes, Saul is from a prominent family. Yes, he's probably wealthy. Yes, his dad is probably important. But he's a Benjaminite. Now, God is not above or beyond redeeming your family history. But this would have given any ancient Israelite some pause. And it should give us some pause too. I alluded to some of these things um, last week, but in the book of Judges is, is the really kind of the, the time period that takes place right before the book of 1 Samuel. And in Judges chapter 19, as we kind of approach the the end of the book, there's a man traveling through the region of Benjamin. He's traveling into the city of Gebeah, which is Saul's hometown. And he's bringing his concubine, which is sort of like a second-level wife, which screams all sorts of other problems going on here as well. And he's looking for a place to rest from his travels. And the people of the town are insistent on taking this stranger and sexually abusing him. In the town of Gebeah, in the tribe of Benjamin. And he escapes with his life, and he escapes with some semblance of his dignity, but the way he does that is he basically kicks his concubine out of the house and says, do with her whatever you want, leave me alone. And they abuse this poor woman all night long. And when he wakes up in the morning, he finds his concubine essentially dead uh, or on her last gasps. And he seems to have no remorse of that. He recognizes that it's an evil thing, it's a bad thing, and that they should pay for it, but he doesn't seem to care about the person. So in Judges chapter 20, there's a call to arms, though. They, they recognize that what happened there was, was wicked, and he 
sends out notice to all the tribes of Israel that we need to come together, we need to band together, and we need to kill these men of Gibeah who committed this heinous, evil, despicable action. And, and so there's a civil war that breaks out in Israel with the vast majority of the Israelites coming together to take care of the wickedness in this town. But even then, we, you know, well, on one hand we want to cheer, oh yeah, this is great that they're punishing this evil. The second, then we had the second thought, yeah, but this just seems like more vigilante justice. They're not, they're not taking the men who actually perpetrated the crime before a judge and, and handling it. They're just, let's bring in the army, let's bring in the cavalry, and let's just kill everybody. So there's something kind of, even while we're, we're glad that they're doing something about it, there's just kind of something dirty, kind of something icky about how they're doing it. And then the rest of the Benjaminites, even though they're called to arms as well, they, they refuse to participate. They're like, well, those are our brothers. That's our family. That's our kin. So we're going to defend them. And so the rest of the tribe of Benjamin goes to war against the rest of Israel to protect their rapist friends. And then in Judges chapter 21, the last chapter of the book of Judges, they realize after this war, after they have successfully defeated the men of Gibeah, they have a problem. For the sake of national unity, the Benjaminites that are left do need to be able to carry on. God did give them 12 tribes. God wanted to bless 12 tribes. There needs to be 12 tribes. But they have basically slaughtered all the women at this point. And so the men of Benjamin have no wives. There's no, there's no women to get married to. And, and they had made a rash oath in their anger when they were going to war. They said, we're not going to give any of our daughters to the Benjaminites as wives. So they made this sort of rash oath. Well, now there's, there's not enough women in Benjamin for them to marry. And they've already pledged that they will not willingly give any of their... And they, well, they can't go back on their word now. They're men of integrity, obviously. So... They devised this great plan. Well, how about this? Why don't we steal some women from one of our tribes of Israel? And that way, they don't have to say they gave them. We stole them from them, and we'll give them to the Benjaminites. At least then they'll have wives. And then there weren't enough. So they gave the Benjaminites the right to go and steal some more. So this is the tribe that Saul is from. This is the most recent information we have about their history. And this is not just the tribe, but this is the specific city that Saul is from. This was probably some of his not too long distant ancestors, perhaps even some in living memory, who committed these heinous acts. And so he's from a prominent family, it's wealthy and it's important, and your family history does not necessarily mean that you are bad. That's not what we're saying here, but it would have given an Israelite reader pause that a man who's coming from a notoriously corrupt city and region, it's the kind of guy you're going to say, I'm going to ask a few more questions about before I hire you for this job. There's some things in your background that I want to 
clear up. He's handsome. He's tall. But who cares? Right? What do we read in, in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, when Peter meets with Cornelius, this, this Gentile uh, military leader who suddenly professes faith in Jesus Christ and Peter has to repent of his sort of sinful uh, need to see everyone through the lens of race. And he, he concludes that God is no respecter of persons. That it, it, God does not look at the outward appearance of, of human beings. God does not look at those sort of physical and biological markers to decide who belongs in his kingdom and who doesn't. Or even in this book, we'll get to in a few, uh, few weeks in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where we're looking at another potential king. Saul is starting, or excuse me, Samuel himself is starting to get confused about this, and God has to remind him, do not look on appearance or height or stature. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Thank goodness we're so much better at this, though, today, right? We, we, don't, we certainly don't look at a person's outward appearance when deciding that they are, well, hmm. You, this is peculiar, but do you ever realize that there is only one United States president since the era of television that was even approaching average height. That was Jimmy Carter, five, nine and a half. But even then, at that point, he was probably slightly above average, probably slightly below average today, slightly above average at the time. Every other U.S. president in the television era has been well above average height. That's strange. That doesn't just happen by coincidence, does it? It's a small sample size. I guess it's possible. It's possible. When was the last president of, you know, if you look back at some of their old presidential portraits, there's some weird-looking dudes. Right? Abraham Lincoln's a weird-looking man. But there are no U.S. presidents in the, uh, and I know that these things are, are cultural and they change and everything else, but there's probably no president of the, since the television era that you would look at and say, that is just a flat-out ugly man. You wouldn't. I mean, they, they, by the cultural standards of the day, they are generally at least moderately handsome. It's a strange thing. If outward appearance doesn't matter at all, it's, it's strange how we tend to choose reasonably handsome, tall men to be our presidents. And yet we know it doesn't matter, right? There's not a single person here who would say to go to a poll and they voted for the guy who was taller and more handsome. There's not a single person here who would say they did it. Yet even going back before the television era, there's still a strong trend, and you have to wonder, what is it about human beings that we look at the outward appearance? What is it that we are looking for? 
So Saul is handsome and he's taller than everybody else, but what does it matter? That is exactly what the ancient kings of the ancient world, particularly, we wouldn't do that today. We would not, that if we've improved at all, it's that we wouldn't say, well, our president is more handsome than your president, so we're obviously, we're the better nation. In the ancient world, they would have. And the, and the fact of the matter is that, that this is in there is, is sort of like they recognize that Saul has the qualities that a worldly king should have. And yet, those qualities don't matter at all. So why bring them up? Throughout the, uh, here, here's another thing we see about Saul that should maybe give us a little bit of pause. Throughout the scriptures, we see that sort of the model for a faithful, solid, spiritual leader is the shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. In fact, so much is the idea of a shepherd become the model for servant leadership that we take that term and it becomes the descriptive term for the kind of person who should lead in a church a pastor never notice it looks like the word pasture it is the word for a shepherd in greek We don't know for sure what Saul's family did. We can be pretty certain they were agricultural, whether they were flocks or crops, we don't know. But we do know that Saul's family had a herd of donkeys, which probably lends them to be maybe more, a little bit more animal-oriented than field-oriented. And they have lost an entire herd of 400 to 500 pound animals and can't find them anywhere it's you know we read about the parable of the lost sheep because one 100 pound sheep can wander off and that would be a big deal and the good shepherd goes and he hunts down the one sheep and brings back that one lost 100 pound sheep but donkeys are herd animals they travel in herds and they're four to five times the size of sheep and it might give us pause that this family, this man, has lost a herd of enormous animals and can't find them anywhere. We have his attempt to uh, find these donkeys. He's about to give up. And his slave tells him that the prophet's in the area. How does Samuel not know there's a prophet in the area? Or how does Saul not know there's a prophet in the area? Samuel has been judging Israel at this point for decades. He was raised in the home of the high priest of Israel. His ministry has taken place just a few miles from Saul's hometown, and his slave knows about him. And when he gets home, Saul's uncle knows about him. How was Saul so ignorant of the fact that the most prominent prophet in the history of Israel since Moses was nearby? And then for a very rich and prominent man, how is it that 
One, Saul doesn't have any money. In fact, he has to rely on the money of his slave. What's happened to it, Saul? Moreover, why does he think he needs to pay off God's prophet? Why does he think that the the spiritual benefits of going to a prophet can only be accrued to him by giving some sort of monetary gift? Now, don't get me wrong. We are are called as as people of faith to be generous. We are called as people of faith to be um, giving and, and out of the goodness of our heart and out of the, uh, uh, the Spirit working on us, we are to be giving people. But there is not, clearly in Scripture, there is not a tit-for-tat idea where you give material resources to receive spiritual blessing, despite what the guy on TV might tell you. It's not true. And yet, this is an ancient heresy, the idea that spiritual blessings can be bought or that they can be withheld from you because you didn't give the full amount of the proper coinage to the right, blessed, anointed person. It's an ancient heresy. And Saul was victim to it. It gives us some concerns about this man. And then we have this interesting word uh, in the end of, of chapter 9 when, we're, when the author is recollecting how God told Samuel that he was going to encounter the man who was going to be king. And he says that he will restrain my people. As just a passing comment in, in chapter 9, verse 17, he it is who shall restrain my people. But that's kind of ambiguous. What does that mean that Saul will restrain God's people? Now, at first glance, you might think, well, the people have been running crazy. If you read the book of Judges, if you read the early chapters of, of 1 Samuel, the people have been kind of going a little crazy in their sin. Maybe that's what it means. But Almost everywhere this idea of restraint is used in the Old Testament, it's a, a negative sense. The, the, the skies are, are restrained from sending the rains that are needed for the crops, that are needed for blessing, that are needed for harvest. Uh, the wombs of women can be restrained from giving birth. And prisoners can be restrained in jail. What is it exactly that God is saying that this Saul is going to do? What will Saul restrain? It's at the very least ambiguous. And then we have these two commands. The second one we haven't come to yet. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks. But that first command is when all these signs come to you, do what your hand finds to do. There's another time that phrase has appeared. It appears in Judges chapter 9. And there it appears in a military context. A military context. In that case, it meant what your hand finds to do is these enemies that have been handed over to you, destroy them. Saul is promised to save his people from the Philistines. 
when this last sign takes place, where does it take place? Outside a military outpost of the Philistines. Which he probably already knew because it was outside his own hometown. So what, when these signs came upon him, did Saul and his hand find to do? There's crickets. There's crickets in the text. Saul, you are going to save God's people from the Philistines, and you're going to know it when you're walking past this Philistine military outpost and these signs come upon you. And then, do what your hand finds to do, Saul. he gets home and his uncle who knows about Samuel asks him what does Samuel tell you oh he told me where the donkeys were did he tell his uncle that God spoke to Samuel that he's going to make me king over Israel and that I'm going to save the people from the Philistines that might have been an awkward thing to mention to his uncle while the Philistine military outpost was just outside the window It's easy to see what we want to see in the people that we want to be our leaders. And if you want to see a great leader in Saul, it is easy to see the potential there for it. He's got all the markings, all the family pedigree, all the background, all the history that we would want in a great leader. He's got the wealth, he's got the resources. He's got, geographically, he's perfectly situated to balance the powers of Israel. He's got God's blessing on him. And yet, everywhere we look, we are left with question marks about his character. Now, does that necessarily mean that he's bad? Well, we probably, most of us know where this story is going. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he's bad, but they are warning signs. There are a lot of warning signs in this text to anyone paying attention with spiritual eyes. A spiritual person, a person living by the Spirit, ought to have been cautious. Ought to have been cautious. Not have thrown their entire uh, heart in with someone like Saul because they could see there are some reasons for concern that we need to look into. There is a great danger as human beings of seeking out leaders that fit the mold that we think a good leader should have. And how are those molds defined? They're defined by our world around us. Our world tells us what a good leader is. When we think, yes, indeed, that is what a good leader is. And then we look for people that follow that mold, and then we hold them up and we say, that is who I want to follow. But thank God we don't have to. See, God has set up a different model for us, hasn't he? Saul was not a good shepherd. 
But God has sent us a good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who lays down his life for his sheep. The great leader in God's economy is the leader who is willing to sacrifice all that he or she is and all that he or she has for the sake of God, yes, but also for the sake of those they lead. Because the line between leading and serving in God's economy vanishes. The line between leading and serving in God's economy vanishes. And we have held up a Savior, Jesus Christ, who models what that looks like for us. Who, though he is king and he is deserving of all of our adoration and praise and our worship, yet he humbled himself. He threw off all the trappings of his wealth and status of heaven to be born poor, to grow up poor, to work with his hands at menial labor, as the world might see it, no such thing, who did not acquire, even in his fame, did not acquire wealth and status to himself, and in the ultimate, final accounting of things, he came, why? He said himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross to give his life and to be a ransom for many. In other words, his life becomes the payment. His life becomes the deposit securing the release of others. We, who seek leaders after our own hearts, who seek leaders after the world's ideas, who seek after kings who are not God, and we put our hope in men and women who will inevitably let us down. And so we, over and over again, have turned our back on the one king who ought to rule our hearts. And though we have become traitors, and though we deserve the death sentence that any traitor deserves, Jesus pays that ransom so that those who come to him can go free. That not only is our salvation and our blessing and our eternal hope, but also our model of everything it means to be a king everything that it means to lead. 
And so we model our own lives. We are called as Christians to model our own lives, and we demand of our leaders to model their lives after lives of humbling ourselves to serve others for their good, not for ours. To give up of ourselves, even if necessary, to the point of death for the sake of others. Not to bring attention to ourselves, not to bring glory on ourselves, not to be worried about what the world thinks of me, what the world thinks of you, not to be worried about what you have accomplished or what you have accumulated or what you have put together and what is going to be written in your obituary or what is going to be written on your tombstone, but simply to serve others and be known by that King Christ. And if you have not come to know him, know now that that is a king that you can rely on. He is a king that not only can save, but can lead. He is a king that rescues you, and he will keep you safe, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And for those of us who are Christians, he becomes the model of what we should look for in a leader. Not that we're trying to find Christ. And if you think you have, look again. But that is the standard we, we, we model our lives after. That is the standard that we should look to for our leaders. Do they demonstrate Christ-like humility and surrender and service? And if they don't, they are not worth following. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a king. Not a king like the nations have. Not a king that we would dream up. Not a king that we deserve. but you have given us the king that we most need. We thank you for him, and we thank you that when we have called for kings and leaders and rulers, to save us from whatever terror we think we have in this world, you have not turned your back on us fully and finally, but you have graciously provided us hope and escape in King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to worship that king with us in one final song, if you will.